like a really great story. <laughs> well, um, I was asked um, by Jennifer Sharp, the director of anecdotals, um, whether or not I was happy that COVID occurred because of, she knew my backstory, my battles dealing with vaccine injured, uh, injury with my son. Mm. I said, well, for the last 20 years, we've been ridiculed, we've been named, you know, called all different types of names, uh, school systems threatening to call child protective services on us. Um, lots of, you know, parents, we've been dealing with this stuff forever. And, but it was little kids that were injured. Okay. Mm. COVID comes around and what happens there is, is that, um, most of the injuries are now with adults because the first big phase was with the adult population and, and right. then the children, then kids, and then later the little kids uh, last year. But um, that probably opened up and became uh, uh, a lot of people became aware that vaccines are not safe and effective. They never have been. The science around that is, is, is basically it's a marketing slogan, in my opinion, safe and effective. It's not been. There's not been one vaccine on the childhood schedule that's been actually tested against a sterile placebo. We've been talking about this for 20 years. Not Whether one. it's MMR, flu shots, whatever. The, um, and the clinical trial, uh, especially for some of the newer vaccines that have been brought into the market, like Gardasil, and things like this, there's so many shortcuts. There's so many things that I would consider fraudulent by the manufacturers, um, and they didn't disclose them to FDA, or the FDA probably didn't even care because they wanted to get these products out onto the market. Um, public health officials look at the greater good. They don't care about the 30 to 35% that have ill effects they only they concerned about the, the greater good so they're always saying safe and effective yet they don't understand the damage that's being done now comes covid and we were out there at the beginning and saying wait a minute you're rushing a development that normally takes seven to ten years you're you're putting it in less than six months uh or eight months you have very little, if any, animal testing, and that failed, what was done. Um, previous attempts have shown this to be a disastrous outcome, and you're now going to require people to get something without long-term testing to tease out autoimmune disorders, fertility issues, and a whole bunch of other things that are traditionally done you know, in the seven to 10 years, we can kind of determine if a certain population set is going to be having an adverse event two to three or four years down the road. Mm -hmm. Never happened. But Jennifer's question, it kind of caught me off guard a little bit. And I said, well, I'm not, ha I'm not happy that COVID happened, but it did bring more awareness. And sure enough, now the adult community, the adult population is aware of vaccine injury. It is not as safe as marketed. It's the injuries are more prevalent, and um, 
but we still have the deniers by public health officials that things happen. I mean, our medical doctors that keep denying vaccine injury because if it doesn't occur in their office after two minutes from uh, administering the vaccine, they it doesn't exist. Okay, but you know, you you've spoken to several members, and I thank you very much for taking the time to do that. It's my, my uh, yeah the the people are you know they might take a day or two days and all of a sudden they've got weakness in the legs or they can't use their legs or they've got uh neuropathy uh whatever in their hands and arms and he's staying you know stinging or uh you know whatever the case may be or they have trouble standing up they have neurological disorders after a few days these things happen and they're happening very frequently now but a lot of still a lot of the population is you know, they're still scared that COVID is so deadly. You know, you had cable news had these death counters, you know, on all their TV. It was just, it was just, you know. I talk about that all the time. And I, and I play the thought exercise. We had the little counter in the corner on all the major news channels. This many people Mm -hmm. died today. This many people got infected today. And I always ask the question, if instead of that counter, we had something, we had a little graphic that said COVID survival rate today remains unchanged at 99.99%. What would the, could they have gotten away with half the stuff they gotten away with if they did that instead? And I think the answer is no. Hey, you know, um, and even in my family, my brothers and sisters and my mother were super scared of COVID. I said, don't be. This is just like the flu, a, you know, a good serious bout. Yes, my mother was at higher risk because she was, you know, uh, she was an uh, 82, 83 years of age, but she also had some uh, heart surgery and stuff like this. So we don't want her exposed. We don't want to do that, nor do we want her exposed to flu or pneumonia or anything else. But if you're going to vaccinate your children, my nephews and nieces, that are, you know, 11, 12, 13, 14 years of age, that doesn't make sense Mm. because they're healthy. You know, um, my brothers and sisters' children are all super healthy athletes, runners, um, uh, things like this. They were what I got one nephew. He says, I row crew. I row crew. I mean, the boats, you know, stuff like this. And, and these kids, you know, they're they're in high school, mm. and they're healthy individuals. Um, but why vaccinate them? Well, it's because, well, COVID is dangerous. Give me a break. Yes, myself, myself, I'm, I could lose quite, you know, some pounds, but I still wouldn't do it. And because um, I know the consequences and the risk here, and I just said, it doesn't make sense. It it doesn't. And we scared so many people into thinking that COVID was the Black Plague, and it wasn't. Nowhere it, near it. It wasn't anywhere. It wasn't anywhere near it. Um, you know, I I have to admit, Wayne, that when um, our mutual connection, um, Laurie, introduced us, I hadn't mm-hmm. yet heard about your work, but as I started researching it. 
And um, I started researching your findings on the vaccine court. My excitement level has gradually been building over the last week or so because I knew I was going to have you on because I think this is learning about how this court operates and how it's been manipulated over the years to kind of stack the deck against plaintiffs. I think goes a long way towards helping people understand exactly how dangerous these things are. So I'd love for you to kind of give us at a very high level um, an explanation of what this court is, how it came to be, and um, how it functions. Okay. First off, there's actually two programs, both federal programs ministered by HRSA, which is the division of HHS, um, Health and uh, Human Resources Services Administration, which is a subgroup of HHS. The Vaccine Court, or the National Vaccine Injury Compensation Program, which was enacted in 1986 and started October 1 of 1988, is for the traditional vaccines. It started out being for seven vaccines, measles, mumps, uh, rubella, which is German measles, uh, diphtheria, pertussis, tetanus, and then the oral polio at the time. Um, and that's where it was. It was moving, and it was actually a, a very fair, equitable program in the first few years. And you could see it in the decisions because there was a lot of parents who um, – lost their children to the DPT, were either severely injured or were that died. And they were fairly compensated for that. Those who developed seizures were, were very compensated and therefore uh, uh, lifelong care of medical expenses and everything would be included, and they were going to be compensated for that. Um, SIDS was actually being compensated. There's quite a few cases where parents lost their uh, little babies or toddlers, and the court recognized, our federal government recognized SIDS as an injury or uh, from vaccines. And mainly it was from uh, hepatitis B or uh, actually, and then DPT at the, uh, the original part of that. So it was, we were going along and it was, of uh, a, a fair, equitable, and efficient program. Then pharma got involved again and basically reached in and used the secretary of HHS at the time, Donna Shalala, under the Clinton administration, and removed seizure disorder as a known injury and moved all these where they were going to be conceded and compensated to where now you have to prove without a shadow of doubt vaccine injury very difficult to do um because so now what you was gotta, the, what was the criteria before uh there was uh of the seven vaccines there was established what they call known vaccine injuries and it was created what we call a table this table if you met if you had um a vaccine that caused this injury within this time frame Based on all the medical literature, based on what I, uh, Institute of Medicine, IOM at the time, you know, incorporated, you would be eligible for compensation. And it was, it was fair. It was equitable for most. Um, but then 
uh, secretary of HHS, she reached in and, and took residual seizure disorder out of the program. And from there, it just flipped the, the vast majority, several thousand petitions at the time, in 1993 and 1995, moved them from uh, conceded cases where they'd be compensated. Now you have to prove it. So now what happens is that the process goes from 18 months and two years to five years, seven years, 10 years, 15 years with extreme, with a lot of attorney interaction and a very expensive medical experts. Now those fees are going to be paid for by the trust fund. It was the program, but now these people, these kids who are injured have to wait five, 10 years worth of litigation to figure out whether or not they're going to be compensated for their injuries. This is where the program just turned on its head and said, no more for a lot of children. Then we brought the flu shot in in 2005. And what we have for the last five to six years now, um, my analysis of all the decisions 95, 96% of all compensated cases are for adults. Children have been thrown under the bus. They're no longer being compensated. They're just, it's, you just, the court doesn't care. The program, our government doesn't care for vaccines, for uh, injuries for children. Why? Because we believe we need to get every child vaccinated. If people knew the truth of what's happening, in the childhood vaccination schedule, they wouldn't vaccinate their kids or at least wait until they're older where their immune systems have have grown up. I would encourage as many as possible never to vaccinate anyone under the age of three, Mm. at least till three. But, you know, we'll go from there. So you have this MVICP or vaccine court, if you will, and this is where we are today. We're compensating adults for shoulder injuries, and Guillain-Barre, modern-day polio, if you will. That's it. Now you have COVID. COVID comes into play, and this is where I've been saying this before COVID. It exposed what we call the PREP Act and the Countermeasures Injury Compensation Program. Now, we can spend hours talking about the PREP Act, and I'm not really going to go much into that. Mm-hmm. Um, but the Countermeasures Injury Compensation Program, which was established in 2010, we, as a, our, our government was embarrassed by what happened when they released and fast-tracked the H1N1 vaccine back in 2009. The H1, you know, the bird flu, avian flu, whatever they want to call it. Right. When they released that vaccine, it uh, created or caused a lot of injury to a lot of people, normally Guillain-Barre syndrome, GBS, okay? Congress had to do something, so they created this countermeasures program, but they didn't do anything with it. They didn't fund it appropriately. They didn't staff it appropriately. But it was designed to treat regional outbreaks, Maybe we have a major hurricane, and then you have disease that runs rampant for a couple weeks afterwards. 
then the government would would provide countermeasures, treatments, medicines, vaccines, whatever, to treat those outbreaks. Okay, that's what it was designed for. But it was never designed for a nationwide, long term pandemic. Because, I'm, contrary to a lot of people thinking, I submitted some FOIAs and I received some information back. They were not even, our government wasn't planning on compensating the COVID vaccine injured uh, people. When you only budget last year budget $931,635.36 for compensation for COVID vaccine injuries, that's you're insulting. not planning. That's insulting. Not even a million dollars. Okay. Whereas over in the MVICP, those who are severely injured, frequently they can be awarded compensation in the amounts with an, you know annuities to take care of lifelong care and all that. Several million, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine million dollars. Mm-hmm. It's a common award for someone who is severely injured that needs hospital care or nursing care, residential care, you know, round the clock care. Now, you and I have spoken to a couple friends uh, up here in Minnesota. Um, One, she's confined to a wheelchair. Mm -hmm. She's going to require a lot of care for the rest of her life. This compensation program doesn't provide that. And not just the dollars. They never had staffing. Mm -hmm. They they didn't staff. They don't have people processing uh, petitions. Um, medical review, meaning doctors and nurses that look at the documents to determine yes, what or no. Um, and it's really embarrassing. But the, the countermeasures injury compensation program it really isn't a compensation system. It's a medical expense reimbursement. So one of the, the, the things that people have to understand, and it's really frustrating, Pain and suffering is an American legal process. Mm. You're, you know, if you're injured, we award you personal injury of some sort in the in the legal system, personal injury uh, for pain and suffering for your injuries occurred by whatever means. Okay, in this CICP, there is no pain and suffering. You're awarded uh, medical expense reimbursement. Job uh, job wage loss of up to fifty thousand a year. So someone who's making a hundred thousand or two hundred thousand and no longer can work doesn't make sense. They're not they're they're not made whole. You know, like this. The only time you're awarded compensation in the program, unfortunately, is when you die. That's the only benefit of compensation. Mike, and it, what it is is that the death benefit, which is uh, pu- the public services office, public safety officers benefit program, which is used for law enforcement, federal law enforcement, and everything else. They're using that as a guide for dollar amounts, and it's about $423,000 this year. Mm-hmm. And it increases each year. If you die as a, as a result of the COVID vaccine, your, your estate, your family will receive, could receive up to that amount. Otherwise, if you don't die, you just get medical expenses. 
I mean, you don't get any safe. You don't get pain and suffering for all your agony and all you know what you've gone through. Nothing. Obviously, it's not a it's not a serious it's not a serious effort. I'm fascinated with this idea of indemnity for these um, big pharma companies. Can you tell us a little bit about how that came about way back when? Okay. Um, in the National Vaccine Injury Compensation Program, when it was originally uh, being uh, debated in Congress, 1983-1984-1985, um, pharmaceuticals wanted the pharmaceutical industry basically lied to Congress and they said we're going to go out of business we can't afford continuing making um, uh, the, these vaccines because of lawsuits well they didn't tell people that yes they were losing lawsuits but they were then winning most of them on an appeal. Hmm. So, you know, there was a lot of deceivement there. Hmm. But so the program was put in where they would not be sued. They would not have uh, liability. Uh, they would have uh, be immune to product liability for what we call defective design, the injury of this vaccine. Um, but the advocates that were at Capitol Hill, that was Barbara Lowe Fisher, Jeffrey Schwartz, Kathleen Williams, which later became the NVIC.org, that group there, they wanted the ability to get to state court. So there was a compromise. And the compromise was is that you have to file within this program first. You can leave the program after 240 days. The thinking is everybody's petitions would probably take about eight months to nine months to to litigate. That's how fast and efficient the program should have been at the beginning. Mm. So you could leave after 240 days, file a state, what we call a civil tort claim, an injury claim in state court and take your chances there and sue the manufacturer directly. Okay, that process was in there. It was in what we call Section 23 of the Act, the ability to sue the manufacturer. But you remember when I told you about residual seizure disorder being taken out? What was kind of interesting is, is that once that was taken out, there's this little girl. Her name was Julie, Bruzo, uh, Julie Bruzowitz. She was injured by the DPT, and her parents filed suit mm. it was dismissed a couple years later because of you know residual seizures order they couldn't uh, prove it um and then she, so her parents continued through the federal court state court system and appealed up to the federal court system and it finally reached the u.s supreme court in 2010 mm. in february of 2011 Justice Scalia, the U.S. Supreme Court Associate Justice, wrote for the majority that the remedy for vaccine injury is uh, the exclusive remedy is the NVICP. They, and a, a vote of six to two, they took that ability to exit the program and remove that from the program. So we no longer can sue the manufacturer for defective design. What remains today is you can sue them for fraud. Mm. 
The problem with that fraud case is that Very the hard burden to prove. is so high, hard to prove, and you're not going to be able to afford to do it on a single case. This is where you're going to need a group of attorneys and a whole bunch of plaintiffs, and somebody's got the key to Fort Knox to go in there and pay for it because it's going to take 10 to 15, maybe 20 years in court and hopefully you don't get the motions to dismiss and get discovery. This is how uh, Viot Merck got caught with Viox. Mm. This is that you got into the discovery phase and you could see the internal documents of what they did. That's the hope with fraud is, is that you can see what's happening. I do know that they're trying to do this with Gardasil right now. And it's a fraud case, but it re- it's a lot, you know, hundreds of cases. Um, many different attorney for, uh, firms are involved in this, and it's against Merck on fraud, what they did um, regarding Gardasil injuries. So you have pharmaceutical industry is basically uh, has immune uh, is immune to lawsuits because of uh, of injuries. And that's where it is right now. Well, what about the role that insurance companies played for a long time? Because as you tell it, that it, when when these companies had to compensate for vaccine injury, it didn't come out of their pockets. Their insurers paid for it. And then at some point, insurers said, wait a second, we're not going to be able to continue in this business. Right. And what that was is that in the early 80s, the DPT vaccine cost about a dollar to produce. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, once the lawsuits started coming through and the initial lawsuits were awarding damages, and there wasn't that many. There was just, you know, there are a few. And they were awarding multi-million dollar um, damage awards because you have to provide care, you know, for that uh, that child for the rest of their lives. And so, you know, you got seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, you know, one case, I think it was $14 million damage award. Um, the property casualty companies or the malpractice insurance, I wouldn't, I wouldn't say it's malpractice, but it's the insurance companies that um, they go back to their uh, their customer, which is the, uh, the manufacturer, and say, hey, we got to increase the premiums. So what happened was, from 1980 to 83, the cost went from about a dollar to produce the DPT to a little over $11 per dose. Then you got to tack on all these other things, uh, R&D, you know, you know, return on investment and all this. And it got to the point where then the insurance companies were saying, we're no longer going to cover you. We're dropping you as a client. The, the pharmaceutical manufacturers say, okay, wait a minute. We don't want to be dancing here without someone covering our backside. And sure enough, because they didn't want to be subject to paying out a multi-million dollar jury award all by itself. You know, they wanted the insurance company, you know, to provide some of the coverage and et cetera, et cetera. So that forced the hand of the pharmaceutical industry and then they go to Congress and said, hey, we need help. We're going to get out of this business. Even when they passed the legislation, most of those manufacturers did. They got a consolidation of manufacturing process. 
So it didn't matter. They were going to get out of the business to begin with. Mm. It just, they wanted the excuse of Congress to allow them, you know, a little political cover here and stuff like that. So it seems interesting to me, right? Because the old adage, follow the money. Um, If these products were really safe and effective, why would insurers have to roll back their coverage? I mean, that that seems to me to be where the most telling aspect of this story is. Why would insurers want to get out of this business if these products were were profitable to, to insure? Well, but when they started awarding damages, then they didn't become profitable. And the insurers just said, you know, we're not going to be writing these big checks on behalf of our client, the pharmaceutical industry, and, and pay these uh, 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 these plaintiffs. They wanted to get out of that business that forced the insurance, uh, the, the the manufacturers to say, okay, uh, we can't produce, we're not going to continue to produce without insurance coverage for our losses. Um, it's, a, you know, the manufacturer that uh, with, with Hannah Julia um, Bruzewitz, Julie was her middle name. Hannah is her first name. Hmm. Um, the, I think it's called Letterly was the name of the manufacturer. They stopped manufacturing that product six months after she filed a petition in the MVICP. But I don't believe it was a direct result. It's just as that they were going to get out of the business. You started seeing uh, a consolidation of manufacturers to where you have monopolies. Mm. I mean, we used to have five companies that produced the, uh, the measles vaccine by itself. Mm. By the way, the measles vaccine as a single vial was very safe. It really was. There wasn't that many known injuries. Mm. Okay, we think. The data is kind of, you know, a little cloudy. But when it's combined with the mumps and combined with the rubella and the manufacturing process where now you got to add all these uh, adjuvants and these other toxic elements into it, then that's when it really became very uh, toxic. That's what injured my son was the MMR. I'm glad you brought Uh, your son up. I'd like for you to talk about him if you would. Okay. Um, Nick, uh, who was vaccine injured, his, uh, his twin brother, Austin were born uh, in 19 in October of 1997. They were actually born 10 days apart. Hmm. Austin born first. He was a little impatient. <laughs> and then Nick didn't want to, Nick didn't want to be born. He just laid back and, you know, and then 10 days later, he decided he, he wanted to be born. Hmm. And the doctor said, let's do it. Um, at the age of 13 months, we took him in for the uh, vaccination. We didn't vaccinate him prior to that. Okay. And at 13 months, we took him in and got the MMR. Austin, he cried for about two minutes. Okay, no big deal. Mm. And then he was fine. Nicholas had a severe reaction, screaming, crying, uh, immediately red flush of the face and the body, arching of his back. Almost instantaneously. Almost instantaneously. And 
what we looked at, we, we figured out a couple of years later, that's the telltale signs of encephalopathy, mm. the beginning of what can be an encephalopathy episode, meaning a brain injury. Mm. His body reacted. Now, why is that? They were not identical twins. They're fraternal twins. But what was the difference? Well, this is the nature of science here. We'll never know these things because we don't want to go back in and look at what caused vaccine injury Mm. because most of medicine, public health, refuses to acknowledge there is vaccine injury. But we, and so the thing is, so Nicholas was injured and it, he, he was for the next two weeks, he was continuously crying and screaming, and vomiting and high temps, everything like this. And as new parents, our doctor said, give him a little baby Tylenol to help. It sounds more I serious think, than, than a baby Tylenol case. Yeah. Well, we now know now that Tylenol is the worst thing you can give these kids, especially mm. when you think you have a reaction because it, you know, um, it just is that. So after a couple of weeks, he calmed down. Mm. But then we noticed something happening over the next 18 months to 24 months. He lost his ability to speak. Mm. He lost his desire to play sociably with his brother constantly he wanted to be more uh, by himself then the way he would interact with toys and things you know stare at the the ceiling fans and stemming of toys instead of playing with toys and it wasn't until uh about uh age of four and a half we were able to finally get um a columbia university trained psychiatrist we were living in oklahoma at the time Boys were born in Dallas. Mm. We moved up to Oklahoma one year later to be with my wife's parents to help with the twins. And we were had an appointment, and she took two days of meeting with us, meeting with Nick, interacting with Nick. And she came back with a diagnosis of what we call severe regressive autism. Mm. He lost his ability to speak. He lost his ability to play socialize. Things like this. She didn't know what to do other than she then Xeroxes out of um, a textbook, two pages on autism, and then hands over a prescription of Ritalin to us. So this is what we're doing. I didn't like the Ritalin because I did hear stories of what that's done to kids. Mm. We walk out. And we get into the parking lot and we just rip up the prescription, the Ritalin, mm. and throw it down on the floor. Right. But we go home and then we started working with our pediatrician and trying to figure out. And he kept saying, Oh, Einstein doesn't talk to you at his age of five. I said, Wait, wait a minute. Nicholas spoke, had a vocabulary. By the way, when they both were talking prior, him and his brother, they never would shut up. They were always back and forth talking and having fun, you know, competing against each other. Right. And it was hilarious at times. But right. after this, no, it was a slow decline. Um, my wife and I started, and she brought up the thing. She didn't want to say the all word. 
you know, as much, but we knew that's what it was. Mm. And so we started looking into it. Um, she wanted to know what the heck happened. Why did it happen to Nick? And she started digging into this. And I was looking at, okay, we've got all these treatments and therapies for Nick and the insurance companies weren't paying for anything. We got all these denials, denial stuff. So I started advocating and advocating for insurance coverage in Oklahoma, not only for autism, but other disabilities, which most of them were not, you know, insurance companies were denied. And that basically was where we started, uh, you know, advocacy efforts on behalf of Nick. Um, and my wife was figuring out, wait a minute. She found Barbara Lowe Fisher's group online um, and contacted an attorney. His name was Cliff Shoemaker. Cliff Shoemaker was one of the original attorneys. He actually practiced before the program. He represented people who were vaccine injured before the MVICP came about. He was also Hannah Poling's attorney. Hannah Poling being the famous autism case that broke in 2007 that was compensated by our government. Even CDC Director Julie Gerberding at the time said yes. But then they backtracked and mm. said, no, autism, uh, uh, vaccines don't cause autism. Mm. Yet yeah, it does, you know, mm. and it does thousands of times. Mm. So we sent all the medical records to Cliff. Cliff looked at everything, took about a couple weeks to look at everything, got back to us and said, you got a great case here for encephalopathy. Except for one thing. What's that? Statute of limitations. You only have three years to file. And we were three years, nine months when we were speaking with him. Uh, so we, were, we were time barred. We were prohibited for filing in the MVICP a petition for compensation. But even, I, even though the symptoms presented immediately? You have three years from when the symptoms present to when you can file. Hmm. Okay. It's a statute of limitations. It's the shortest statute of limitations at the time in our federal government, in the federal legal system. A lot of other uh, legal areas uh, is maybe recognize children up to the age of 18 or six years after the injury or whatever the case may be. And a lot of different states had different things, but this was the shortest for that. And my first thing of, to Cliff. Aren't there a lot of cases where symptoms don't present until after beyond three years? They can be. But then you get some problems, and I'll touch on that. That has to do with Gardasil. Yeah. This is really a miscarriage of justice, too. Um, but I, I asked my question to Cliff. and says, what's the MVICP? What's the National Vaccine Injury? I had no clue what it was. Yeah. I asked my doctor, and he said he had no idea what it was. It's a hidden program. That stores up here, and it kept bugging me for a few years. Yeah. And then I started digging into it, which led to my first book, which I published in 2014. And it was about what I did is I interviewed 285 families, picked and choose a few stories about their journeys. And I kind of stayed away from autism. Mm. 
Mm. I wanted to know other things. You had a lot of people who uh, hepatitis B injuries causing arthritis, causing death, causing, you know, things like this. Uh, Polio issues. You know, we stopped um, um, administering oral polio and moved to what we call uh, inactivated polio virus, the IPV. And that created all new sorts of injuries. Oral polio just basically created polio injuries. Hmm. IPV created other types of injuries. And um, so I wanted to know about that. Got into Gardasil, and this is the one that is just extremely frustrating. When we first approved Gardasil, and it was added to the table in 2007, we were going to um, be administered to teenage girls, okay? 12, 13, 14, 15 years of age, right? Mm. It's kind of strange between two guys talking about menstrual cycles here, but this is what <laughs> it's going to be about. Well, it's, teenage, we're really talking about vaccines. Yeah, but teenage girls' menstrual cycles in their teenage years are never on a regular basis. Right. Okay. Just, it's not. They get the vaccine, and then when they reach the ages of 21, 22, 23, maybe a little bit later on, they're thinking about getting starting a family. Right. They find out that they're sterile. Mm. They go, well, the government's look at taking the position, your menstrual cycles weren't regular, so that was your first symptom. Seven, eight, nine, ten years later, boom, your statute of limitations, and you have no chance. And this is what happened, and it's continuing today on what we call premature ovarian failure or sterility of in the women uh, from Gardasil. And hopefully they can address this in the fraud cases because it was brought up that Merck hid this fact in one of the clinical trials. Mm. There's high-risk groups that should not get Gardasil that could cause these issues. Those who are taking certain types of depressants, antidepressants, certain types of acne medicine. Mm. Okay. So it's just, it's frustrating what you see is, is that you have pharmaceutical industry does their own thing and our regulators don't regulate. They just accept what's there. CDC, FDA, they don't care. Just tell us what's, what it is, and then we'll look at it and approve it. But they don't, they don't investigate. They don't have any oversight in when they're conducting clinical trials. It's the way it's set up, and it's frustrating. We spoke at the top about vaccines broadly. Are there yeah. any that are are safe if someone is starting a family now um what would you recommend and perhaps importantly what would you where would you point them in terms of resources <clears throat> information that's unbiased and uh, you know helps them make an informed decision um that's a tough question to answer because if i answer it somebody might take it and say this is gospel Right. Um, 
And all the standard disclaimers apply. We're not giving medical advice. (laughs) Go on, do your own research, that kind of thing. Right. There is um, a lot of evidence to show through looking at clinical trial data that a lot of the vaccines given to our kids at very early ages, before the immune system is completely developed around the age of three, three and a half, could cause problems. Mm. So, you know, we we had that one study. William Thompson, CDC even was a whistleblower on it and brought it out, that the autism risk to African-American boys in the uh, Atlanta area mm. was four times greater if they were vaccinated before the age of three than after three. That sounds pretty convincing to me. Yeah. There's a lot of science that concludes, yes, that's true. Mm. Um, I don't believe that any woman should be vaccinated while they're in their childbearing years. Mm. Okay. There's no science to prove that um, if a pregnant mother receives a vaccine, whether it's a Tdap booster, well, they're not going to get a live virus anyway, like an MMR, but a Tdap booster, flu shot, or even now the COVID vaccines, they can't show that the unborn child will be um, will be healthy meaning we we don't know on this covid stuff we don't know the cognitive issues yet with children born to pregnant mothers who got the the vaccine we now but we do know that a lot of uh it was a huge uptick in stillborns miscarriages and whatever else you want to call it in the first trimester mm to women who received the COVID vaccine. And we also know the transfer of, uh, of the vaccine problems in the breast milk. Right. Okay. But then when you look at autopsy data, we've noticed that the, especially in the COVID stuff, we see Spike protein, everything concentrates in the testes and the ovaries and pancreas and a few other places. So that doesn't tell, that doesn't point to a positive picture for the outcome. I'm worried about fertility. Males who get vaccinated, especially boosted, and then father, children a little bit later on, will that transfer from the sperm? to the egg, to the child. We don't mm. know that yet, do we? Mm. Um, I'm concerned about all the kids that are being born from vaccinated uh, mothers. What will, their, their co- will they have cognitive issues at the ages of three, four, and five? We're going to find out in a couple years. And it could be shocking. I pray that we don't, but I think we will. Um. So it this is tough. I just now there's there's a lot of doctors that says we don't need to vaccinate our kids. Well then you'll have emergency room doctors that says pertussis in a six month old is is really bad. Yeah, 
But we now know that the DPT, the DTAP vaccines, don't stop transmission of pertussis, the whooping cough. Mm. It's it's fallible because it wanes off. It things like this. Well, measles is bad. Well, measles is bad for a pregnant mother. I get that. Mumps is bad for a post-adolescent male. Can cause sterility. Do you remember a few years ago when mumps kind of made the circle around, was it the National Hockey League and all these players? Um, I'm a big Minnesota uh, Wild hockey fan. Right. Played hockey my life and all that. But many of the players came down with mumps Mm. a few years ago. And you go, why is that? Well, the vaccine, if they did receive one, didn't work. If you're exposed to, I believe if you're exposed to mumps, the wild virus as a kid, you're going to be immune for the rest of your life. Right. So to me, um, I would decide what's, you know, have an honest discussion with your partner, with your spouse, and then honest discussion with your doctor. And don't listen to cable news uh, or radio advertisements because yeah. they're there to influence you. They're not there to educate you. Um, that's the best I can do. Well, listen, you're you're doing you're doing plenty, and I want to sincerely thank you for taking the time and and um, spending tonight with us and making us a little smarter on this issue. Please tell the folks before we let you go where they can track you down online, where they can find your books that you've written. Um, the website is thevaccinecourt.com. You can get both books there. Um, 2.0 is the current one. Later this year, I'll be releasing uh, the Countermeasures Intercompensation Program book, but it's also going to be about what's happened, compensation programs around the world. So hopefully I can get that finished by the end of March, and then we can get it printed and distributed at the end of this year. But it'll be at thevaccinecourt.com. I also have a substack called thevaccinecourt.substack.com, where I do some writing. Um, and put that out there. And then I do my own podcast from time to time uh, on the Rumble channel. YouTube deleted all my videos. As they did with me. Oh. <laughs> and so I got them out on Rumble. So it's rumble.com slash C slash right on point. And you, you can get them there. It's all free subscribing. So do what you want to do. But I also encourage people to Listen to you because you're now you're taking the time to talk to what we call team humanity, right. the people who are being injured by the COVID vaccine. It's really important that people listen to the struggles. What these you know these people are in pain, they've lost their jobs, uh, they need our help, and our government is going to throw them under the bus, and that's that's a shame. They refuse to acknowledge them. Thank you very much them. for being on time. I'm being allowed me some time today. It was absolutely my honor and and my pleasure. And I look forward to having you back real soon. Mike, take care. Thank you very much.